Well, this morning we are returning to the Gospel of Matthew and the aftermath of one of the most catalyzing experiences of the disciples' time with Jesus Christ, the events of the Mountain of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John, they've ascended up to a very high mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've watched Him transfigure right in front of their eyes. And what do they see? Well, let's remind ourselves of what they see. Turn over in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to begin our work very quickly here this morning. I have a lot to cover today. I'm excited about that. Matthew 17. The events of Matthew 17, they follow closely in the timeline uh, after they're in Caesarea Philippi, where Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's also been rebuked by the Lord after refusing to accept the coming death of Christ. Jesus tells him he's going to die, and he's subsequently going to rise, and Peter does not accept that, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is emphatic that he is the Christ, and he is destined also to suffer. He's destined to die. He's destined to rise. Well, this does not reconcile in their minds with their previous understanding that they had and the previous expectation of the Messiah, and they're struggling to accept what they're hearing. Messiah is not going to come and die. That doesn't make any sense to to us at all. And it's on the heels of that that we read the events of the following. Matthew 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down, that fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And so we saw several weeks ago a a stunning display of the glory of Christ coupled with the affirmation of the Father's approval and love for His Son. This experience was not forgotten. They didn't just experience this and then kind of move on with their life. They remembered this. And even Peter writes 30 years later, referring to the time that he beheld the the majestic glory, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so this would have been in their minds for the rest of their lives. But there was a brief time, however, that the disciples were not allowed to speak about this event. We read about this in the very next verse. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So looking at verse 9, we see that Jesus forbids the disciples from telling anyone about what they've just seen. 
And the question is, well, why is that? Why does he stop them from talking about what they've just beheld? Well, for starters, because nobody would have understood what it meant. All throughout the ministry that Jesus had, he had performed signs and wonders and miracles in front of all the crowds, but oftentimes their reaction was to try and enlist him as their king. Their their king to fight the Romans or to end oppression or to bring prosperity. And that's even a gospel that we hear much today, that Jesus is only here to give you victory and prosperity and health and wealth and happiness. That was what the Israelites or what the Jews wanted from Jesus as well. But that's not why he came. Why did he come? By his own words, Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He says, to give his life as a ransom for many, to offer true life and true freedom, not from oppressive governments, but from the slavery of bondage to sin. That's why Jesus came. But they didn't know that yet. They didn't understand. He told them over and over again, but they just weren't getting it. And so five times in the Gospel of Matthew, we read occasions where Jesus tells his followers not to share the details of what they're seeing in his ministry. And this is the final one. This is the final time he tells them, don't say anything. Don't tell people what you've just seen because they won't understand. Tell them after I've gone. Why? Well, as New Testament scholar Grant Osborne has noted, because the true significance of the transfiguration cannot be understood apart from Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. It's only when we see that Jesus is about to give his life for us that we truly understand who he really is. And so he tells them to keep silent. Keep silent until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And once he has risen from the dead, tell everyone. Tell everyone then, but until then, tell no one. But this elicits a question from the disciples in verse 10. Look at verse 10. On the heels of that, the disciples ask him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, this question was a a theological question, but more than that, it was an eschatological question. Eschatology refers to end times. It had to to do with that. The question was talking about the last days and the return of the Messiah. But to understand the nature of the question, we have to do a little bit more research in the background here. So we're going to ask a couple of questions before we even try to get into answering that question. Number one, namely, who is Elijah? And number two, why are they talking about his return? Well, let's talk first about Elijah. The story of Elijah the Tishbite comes to us in 1 Kings chapters 19, or excuse me, 17 through 19, as well as 2 Kings 1 and 2. He is a prophet in Israel. He prophesies under the wicked king Ahab during the 9th century BC. Now, Ahab is married to an evil queen named Jezebel, who becomes the key opponent in Elijah's ministry. And he begins his ministry by prophesying a drought that's going to take place in Israel as a judgment for their rebellion against the Lord. As a result of this drought, it's followed by three and a half years of famine that wreak havoc on Israel. So after Elijah prophesies the stopping of all the rain from the clouds and a subsequent drought, the whole place just goes into chaos, famine, and absolute desolation. For three and a half years. And as you can imagine, that didn't make Elijah very popular. 
people were pretty angry. But in the providence of God, Elijah was hidden away for safety's sake for the duration of that time. God sort of hides him away and brings him into a place where he's safe. But when he returns from exile, it is to instigate a showdown against from himself and 450 prophets of Baal. In fact, I want you to get a taste of what this is like. And so turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, we begin to enter into this narrative here. In response to the judgment of God on Israel, Queen Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, Jezebel, slaughters every prophet she can find. Because after all, it was a prophet that did this to us, so we're going to go find all of them and kill them all. And so she does that. Well, thankfully, a man named Obadiah was able to rescue about a hundred of those prophets and hide them in caves. But that gives you a sense of understanding of what kind of situation Elijah's walking into. Okay? There's a price on his head. But Elijah challenges King Ahab and rebukes him for leading Israel away from the Lord. And then he calls for all the false prophets of Baal and Asherah to meet him on Mount Carmel for a showdown. I mean, this is a showdown of epic proportions here. So 1 Kings 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. We're going to jump right into the narrative here. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. But then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let's give, the, give them two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. Verse 25, so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, and prepare it first for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied, or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be wakened. So they cried out with a loud voice, and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook at Kishon and slew them there. My heart is pounding. (laughs) Several things jump out from this passage at us. First of all, we see the absolute bankruptcy of false religion. False religion does absolutely nothing. Despite all the hysterics of the prophets of Baal, their false gods were utterly lifeless, unable to do a thing. Secondly, we see the awesome and terrible power of God, that despite all obstacles, the Lord vindicates His own name to the absolute shock of the bystanders, to the point where they can claim nothing else except the Lord, He is God. And then thirdly, and most certainly less importantly, we see the character and the courage of Elijah, who though although he was in the minority, one against 450, how's that for odds for you? One against 450 prophets, he stood firm to defend the name of God, and he even taunted those who stood against the true God of Israel. And I would even add, may the Lord grant to us thousands of Elijahs even today. But following this showdown, Elijah, he is chased to Horeb, where he meets with God there alone, in a very similar fashion to Moses on Mount Sinai. Then later in 2 Kings chapter 2, we see his departure from the scene, not through the means of death, but through a, a rapturous means of a heavenly chariot. Elijah is speaking with his protege, Elisha, We read in 2 Kings 2.11, Then it came about as they were going along and talking, and behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And then Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And so Elijah is raptured up to heaven without dying. Only one of two people in biblical history, the other being Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, the only one of two to experience that kind of departure. But Elijah leaves this world with the same fiery display as he lived, a heavenly-minded man of God. Yet the disciples are speaking of Elijah's return. Well, where do we see this? Where does Elijah return? Flip over in your copy of Scripture to Malachi chapter 4, toward the end of the Old Testament, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. 
Malachi prophesied in Israel 500 years after Elijah, or thereabouts, 400 years before Jesus. But in these final words of judgment against the rebellious Israel, he sets the stage for the coming of the Lord in final judgment. And so we read in Malachi chapter 4, again the end of his prophecy, the end of all prophecy in the Old Testament, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will fall, or excuse me, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Lord ends the Old Testament is with the promise of a curse if they don't repent. It's very interesting considering what we just encountered on the mountain of transfiguration that Malachi mentions both Moses and Elijah in his prophecy here. That's not a coincidence, by the way. But both men appear with Jesus on the mountain, but it's specifically Elijah that is of interest here. Verse 5 in Malachi 4, verse 5 here, says the Lord is going to send Elijah back to earth prior to his own coming in judgment. He will, verse 6, restore the hearts of the father to, their, to fathers of the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. In other words, there's going to be some sort of revival or restoration whereby the generation that is alive when he comes will be awakened to the old ways of righteousness of their own earthly fathers. This is going to be some kind of massive restoration. But it was understood by all the scribes and all the teachers that Messiah, Messiah would not come unless and until Elijah came first. Go back to Matthew 17. <clears throat> the disciples, again in verse 10, all they're doing is repeating and rehearsing the common belief that all Jews had in the day that Elijah will return prior to the Messiah. So why are they asking this question now? Why ask this question? Well, scholars have offered us many different answers. I think if we put ourselves in their vantage point, I think that we can make some sense of it. See, the disciples have recently come to realize that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. He is the Christ. They've declared this. They've Confess this. Peter in Matthew 16, 16 says that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, they also encounter Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop, both of whom had been gone for several hundred years. What's curious, however, is that when they saw Elijah on the mountain, he had not returned before that. In other words, that was the first time that they or anyone else had seen Elijah 
since he had left the scene hundreds and hundreds of years before. And so they're asking, essentially, wasn't Elijah supposed to come before you, Lord? Again, this is two and a half years into his ministry, and now they're seeing Elijah. They're thinking, wait a second. Wasn't he supposed to come already? What's going on? That's what the scribes all say. So what is the correct answer? Look at verse 11. He, speaking about Jesus, answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So he tells them, yes, very plainly, Elijah is coming. He is coming. That's the future. And then he pulls a little bit here from Malachi's prophecy when he says that he, Elijah, will restore all things. He will restore all things. This is in line with the teaching of the scribes. This is nothing different. But then Jesus adds this in verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now wait a minute. I'm really confused now. What's going on? Elijah has already come? You just said he's on the way, he's coming. But now you're saying he's already come and nobody recognized him. Well, how, why? How has Elijah come and we missed him? Jesus adds to to missing him, he says, they also did to him whatever they wished. Now we look ahead and we know the story and we've talked about this back in Matthew chapter 14. We know that, that Elijah was imprisoned and eventually he was killed. He was beheaded by Herod. But Jesus concludes here, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And once Jesus said this, verse 13, the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I think I actually just said Elijah, but I meant to say John the Baptist. For those of you who are taking notes. So Elijah returns in the person of John the Baptist, followed closely by Jesus the Messiah. And then he tells them, essentially, John was put to death. And so in like manner so must I. That's the connection. So John came as Elijah and was killed. I've come as Messiah and I'm going to be killed as well. That's the connection. But why did he tell them this? Because they could not fathom it. They couldn't possibly imagine that Messiah would come to earth and be killed. And again, they rejected that notion, which is what earned Peter the rebuke that he received earlier on. See, their view was that Messiah was coming in judgment to destroy Israel's enemies and to rule on the throne of David, so it does not seem to match reality that was unfolding before them. But Jesus makes it clear that if he didn't go and die, there's no redemption. And if he doesn't resurrect, there's no eternal life. And so Jesus has to die, and he has to rise. But there are still some questions that have to be answered because some of these things don't add up. When religious leaders go to see John the Baptist in the wilderness, remember back in your mind to John chapters 1 and 2, they go see John, and they ask him point blank. This is John the Baptist now. The leaders say to John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? And what does he say? I am not. He says, I'm not Elijah. Furthermore, the ministry does not culminate in restoration. John is not able to restore the hearts of the children back to the fathers. He preaches against Herod, and he gets his head cut off. It certainly doesn't seem to fulfill Malachi's prophecy. 
So what's going on? Yet Jesus in Matthew eleven fourteen says that John is Elijah, with a caveat, if you care to accept it. So what is going on here? Is he or is he not? And if so, why is prophecy not being fulfilled? I believe the answer comes clear when we understand one thing. That there are two comings of Jesus Christ. One in history past, one in history future. One in humility, another in glory. One for salvation and one for judgment. This is absolutely essential to understand. And frankly, this is the reason I believe for their confusion. When the Jews read the Old Testament Scripture, they assumed the Lord was only going to come once. They thought that when He came, it would be both for salvation and for judgment together. They did not divide those two in their minds. But what we now know is that the first time Jesus came, it was to give His life for salvation. And that's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then verse 17 says, For God did not give His Son or send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's what He's talking about. The coming of Jesus Christ in salvation. He comes in humility, born in a manger to a poor family. He lived essentially as a nomad for the large portion of His life. And then He has this forerunner, the one that comes before him to announce his arrival, and that forerunner is John the Baptist. Yet when John is asked if he is Elijah, he says no. Why? Because he's not Elijah. He's not. He's dressed like Elijah. He has a ministry like Elijah. He preaches like Elijah. But he himself is not the reincarnation of Elijah the prophet. However, he is a type of Elijah in that he is the forerunner to Messiah. That's why the angel tells Zacharias in Luke 1.17 that John, John the Baptist, is a forerunner before Christ, listen to this, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He's got the same objective, the same ministry, but he's not Elijah. So does John succeed in accomplishing this ministry of restoration? Well, he succeeds in announcing the Christ, we know that, but he fails to achieve the restoration promised by Malachi. Why does he fail to do it? To continue to beg the question, because he's not Elijah. John's only job was to point people to Jesus Christ. Yet in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus tells him, If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, why did he say that? Because the people could have embraced John's message and repented. They could have. And if they embraced John, they could have embraced Jesus as the king. Remember, he came in, marched into the city on the back of the donkey, and they were put down palm branches before him, and they were praising him, and they were saying, Save now, save now, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? They were prepared to put him on the throne and worship him as king. They could have accepted him as their Messiah. But providentially, that was not the plan. The purpose of Jesus' coming 
was to suffer and die and rise. But practically speaking, John was the forerunner, Jesus was the Messiah, and the people could have accepted both, but they didn't. They rejected both in the providence of God. It's his plan. It was always his plan. And that's Jesus' point here, is the disciples should expect that Jesus is going to suffer the same fate as John. John came as an Elijah, but he was killed. He did not restore the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And Jesus would not fulfill Malachi's prophecy of treading down the wicked on the day of judgment because he too would be killed. But the point here is that that is what the Lord has ordained. Humiliation before glorification, redemption before judgment. What they did not know until later was that Jesus would come again. That wasn't the end. John was not a failure. Jesus was not a failure. That was the plan. But at his second coming, the Bible is very clear that Jesus will tread down the wicked and vindicate the righteous. He will overthrow world governments and corrupt leaders. We're so worried about it today, he will do it. He will sit on the throne of David. He will establish his kingdom forever and ever. What about Elijah? Is he still coming back? Jesus says in verse 11, Elijah is coming. He is coming and will restore all things. And if you were to go to a a traditional Jewish Seder, even today, they leave a place for Elijah at the dinner table. By tradition, even today. So without even realizing what they're doing, they're showing us that they're waiting for Elijah. But when is this going to happen? When is Elijah going to come back? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. We don't know when Elijah is going to come back. But there is at least one theory. Turn in your copy of Scripture to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now, the book of Revelation is comprised of visions given to the Apostle John, which pertain to the last days and the final return of Jesus Christ. Hence, the book is not technically called Revelations, as many like to call it, but it is technically and formally called the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what is coming in the future to reveal Jesus to the world. And the bulk of the book is comprised of events that take place at the end of the age, leading up to the second coming of Christ, most of which are God's judgments on wicked and rebellious people. But in the midst of all these judgments that are taking place at this point in the history future, we encounter two mysterious figures that appear to bear witness to the righteous acts of God. And so Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, John is writing of this vision he sees. Then there were given to me, or was given to me, a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the foot of the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if, a, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during these, the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days... The breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. And gave glory to the God of heaven. So, in the midst of these judgments, the Lord God sends two witnesses, which are also called, in terms of metaphor here, two olive trees or two lampstands. And their job is to proclaim the words of God to the people of the earth. And those two men, they've been given a prophetic ministry, they've been given the full authority of heaven. They minister here untouched for three and a half years. And the Bible says in verse 2, 42 months. Verse 3, 1260 days. So it's very precise. Three and a half years they will be on earth prophesying. They prophesy and they warn people of God's judgment. And then verse 7 says they're killed. Their dead bodies are left in the streets for three and a half days. And people celebrate their death. And then they both come back to life, ascend back to heaven to the utter shock and dismay of these onlookers. And so two remarkable figures, so much mystery here, but two, two remarkable fi figures, a remarkable event. But the question is, who are these two witnesses? Well, they're not named, so no one really knows. But look at verse 6. We get a clue here, I believe. Verse 6 says, They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over their waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So two signs here are given to authenticate their ministries as being from God. That's the purpose of signs and wonders, by the way, to vindicate and authenticate the Word of God. So two signs are given to them, and I want you to take note of these two signs. The first is to stop through the power uh, to stop the rains from falling, and the second is the power to turn the waters into blood and bring plagues. Who is known for those two unique signs of power? Elijah and Moses. You see a reoccurring theme here? 
Moses and Elijah, two great figures, are identified. They represent the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And these two men join the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so it is believed by many that along with Moses returning to earth, there is a return here of Elijah before the final return of Christ. Now, we cannot be dogmatic about that, and so I won't be. But I'll tell you, doesn't it stick out? And isn't it interesting? And could this be the return of Elijah? Well, Jesus says he is coming. He is coming. And I'll tell you, some are tempted to quibble over things like this, over trying to predict the exact sequence and the the exact timeline and the events of the days. But in the end, we're meant to know this, that all the promises of Scripture will be fulfilled, that Christ keeps all of His promises, that He came to earth to offer salvation to those who would repent, who would turn away from their sins and trust in Him, and also that we are meant to know that He is coming again to judge and to restore. We're meant to take courage and strength from this, not to try to figure out exactly all the details of how it's going to happen because there's a lot we don't know, but we're meant to take heart and to know that Christ is coming again. And before He comes, there will be the coming of Elijah, as He's told us. But whatever day He comes, we don't know. Only the Father knows. But whenever He comes, Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 2, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and righteousness? How will you live? What if Christ comes tomorrow? What if He comes today? What will he find? Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find you standing for righteousness? Will he find you living lives of godliness? Obedience? What will he find? And our final question to consider is, do you know him? Do you know him? If he comes back today and stands here and looks out at you, will he recognize you? Will he know you? How do you know? Have you seen your need for Christ? Have you turned away from your sins and hated your sins and confessed them to the Lord? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in His death, burial, and resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe that He's your Savior? And if you do, The Bible says that those who repent and trust in Him have eternal life. And you can have assurance of that. But if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, don't wait. Don't wait around for Elijah to show up and tell you. Do it today. Repent today. Trust in Him today. Because you might not wake up tomorrow. We're not sure of the future. But know Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him with your whole life. And if you do, the Bible says, you will have eternal life with Him. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we are sure of many things because Your Word is clear on many things. However, there is so much that is not clear to us, Lord. And we study and we we mine the Scriptures and we We exegete and we do word studies and we dig down and we cross-reference and we, we do everything we possibly can to understand what you've given to us, Lord. 
And yet there are some things that we, we just don't have. But what we do have, Lord, is faith and assurance that your promises are yes and amen in Christ. We have faith and hope and assurance because you are the God of our salvation. We're not saved because we're worthy of it. We're not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because somehow we have mortified ourselves enough or atoned for our sins enough. We're saved because of your grace given to us in Christ. We're saved because you have taken pity on us, Lord. You've shown mercy. You've shown grace. You've shown loving kindness to a people who's not deserving. And yet, in your kindness, you've extended salvation to countless thousands and even millions of people, Lord. Your word is true. Your promises are true. And our hope in you is sure. And so, Lord, with the Scriptures, we say, Come, Lord Jesus, come again and vindicate your name. Vindicate the testimony of the righteous. Judge the wicked nations, Lord. Judge the hearts of the the evil ones, Lord. Make things right. But until you return... Give us the, the confidence and the endurance and the steadfastness of purpose and give us the obedience of faith to trust in you and live righteously for you. Lord, plant our feet so firmly that we will stand like Elijah against all the prophets of Baal, that we will stand firm as one against a million, Lord, that we will stand firm for you and not be moved until you come And bring us home. Bring us home, O Lord, in your good time. But until that day, let us stand firm for you. We thank you that we have salvation in Christ alone. We thank you, O Lord Jesus. And in your name we pray these things. Amen.